And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Yo, yo. Welcome to another episode of the Forum Club. I'm your host, Jovan Buha, Lakers beat writer for The Athletic. And we have a special guest for today's episode, Jake Fisher, who recently wrote a book titled Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Jake is a talented author, writer, reporter, podcaster, and an all-around <laughs> good dude. He's on the pod uh, to get into both the book and some of the Laker anecdotes. Jake, my man, how you doing, bud? I'm doing well, man. I'm, I'm counting down the days till I can see you at uh, Summer League once again. I know. I, I'm, I'm already uh, I'm, I'm trying to make some vacation plans just because I have <laughs> not been able to do anything like everybody else for the past year and a half. So I'm, I'm looking at August, but uh, I, it's tough to plan without knowing the Summer League schedule yet. Um, I'm figuring it's going to be like early August, but we, we don't know for sure yet. Yeah, and, unless I mean, you want to break some news on this podcast, and, and no, I got, I got, <laughs> I got no, I've got no news on the schedule. But I mean, you, you said you've been, you've been doing nothing. It's, I mean, you've been covering the, you know, one of the most busiest teams in the league. So I'm, sh- I'm sure the vacation would be, would be well deserved. Yeah, <laughs> that meant more like not traveling, but but definitely <laughs> been busy, busy covering uh, th- this crazy season. But let's dive into the book. Um, how did you come up with the idea and what was the process of reporting it out? Yeah, um, I mean, it started kind of small. It started with the fact that I'm from Philly originally. I, I started uh, covering the Sixers in 2013 for Liberty Bolivar's the Espionation blog right as Sam Hankey took over in Philadelphia, which really got my, you know, atten- my antennas, antennas up, excuse me, um, to, to the tanking, you know, topic, if you will. And then I went to school in Boston covering uh, games at TD Garden for Slam Magazine, where I got my real start. Um, and you know, at, at TD Garden at night, moonlighting as a reporter while I was in college at Northeastern. And, you know, people forget Boston traded KG and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn the same night that Hinky traded Drew Holiday to New Orleans. So those those rebuilds started right in the same time. And there were a lot of other analytical executives who were rising to power and trying to tank um, for that 2014 draft, which, you know, was considered to be the best since 2003, which coincidentally, all those guys from 03, Wade, LeBron, and Bosch, were running the league in Miami anyway. So mm-hmm. teams thought they'd rather, you know, tank, get the next generation of those guys. And by the time you know, that Heat dynasty fell to the wayside, they'd be able to rise to power, which, you know, it has come to fruition in Philly. Um, Boston obviously was there in the conference finals. They've, they stumbled a bit of late, but, you know, they, they, they definitely did rebuild that, that team into a contender. Phoenix did it at the same time. And you know, Ryan McDonough came into power at the Suns in 13. Rob Hennigan did it in Orlando. And then, you know, there's, there is a lot of Lakers included in the book, which brings me here too, because they obviously, of course, did not do this strategy. Their rival Boston moves on from KG and Paul Pierce, while the Lakers are just emphatically, emphatically, emphatically rebuilding or trying to, you know, prop up a contender on its last legs around Kobe on his last legs 
obviously of his career. Um, and, you know, even though he tears his Achilles and tears his shoulder apart and hurts his knee, the Lakers were still trying to ardently not rebuild yet, let alone they end up having the worst record in the league over five years. So losing became such a topic in the NBA from this period that we're talking about. And I, I find that interesting because tanking is such a polarizing topic, right? You have so many people on both sides of pro tanking, anti tanking. I think we, we've seen that best with just the, the whole process situation. And I mean, to this day, the process still gets brought up. You, you still have people, uh, you know, kind of supporting it publicly and, and saying kind of like, look at the Sixers and what they, they've been able to do. And, you know, the one seed in the East look like they have a legit shot to, to make it to the finals. Um, and then you also have people still taking shots at the process and saying it didn't work and um, that it was horrible for the league and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So with such a polarizing topic and something yeah. that has been covered a lot, right? Like, I mean, tanking has it's just been this hot rod of a subject. Um, how did you try to approach it in, in like a fresh way, a, a way that was different than what you had read or, or, or seen people talking about it? Yeah, um, I guess this is a better way to – I don't think I really answered your first question, so thank you for asking me that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I talked to over 300 people for the book. and That's kind of you know, what I think my niche has been covering the league over the last you know eight, eight or so years. I'm a reporter, and I, I find new information that um, you know, I, I look where other people sometimes might not. Like I try to write weird shit pretty much. That's kind of what I, I always say. Um, I think you know the book covers – locker room dynamics and friendships, you know, of veteran players on the trading block versus rookies who are coming in uh, and are trying to make a name for themselves or, you know, head coaching uh, controversies in, you know, just trying to get the job, let alone trying to hold the job, transactional stuff and, you know, trade negotiations, the draft, um, you know, it's such an ecosystem, which we can definitely talk about. You know, the Lakers picking at number two is like such a perfect example of that um, in 2015. Um, just all the different, agendas in play and you know the, the the conflicting agendas between a GM of a team his head coach his players an agent a, a top draft pick all that stuff combined is what really is the NBA behind the scenes right like I, I think the book has very little actual basketball in it I, and I think that's reflective of how the NBA works at large where what happens between 48 and zero on the clock for anyone who's, who's been involved in the inside understands like that's such a small percentage of what this whole iceberg is. Um, and, and I tried to find, um, I mean, I, I did find uh, original storytelling all throughout the book that, you know, fans aren't going to find anywhere else. So that's, uh, that's my pitch, but also that's what I think is, is different about it. Last question before we, we dig into the Lakers stuff, you, you've alluded to some of it. Um, so I, I want to jump into that, but this was your first book. Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess I've, I've never written a book, so I, I'm just <laughs> speculating here. Uh, I'm going to guess it was much different than writing an article or, or reporting out a feature. I mean, obviously, maybe a feature at, at scale. Uh, what did you learn about the process of writing a book and, and what was the most difficult part? Yeah, for those who don't know, I got my like I really forayed into the business at Sports Illustrated for you know a handful of years. Um, and the longest thing I'd ever written there was probably around 5,000 words. 
It was that big David Griffin article that came out at the end of 2019 that obviously Lakers fans will know of that, you know, he, he made some comments that didn't make LeBron too happy, but even that got cut down to like 3,500 words. The book's like 110,000. So it was, a, it was a big, it was a beast of a project. I mean, I definitely have always been um, like a, like a format skeletal type writer. Like I like to structure things out and then kind of have, you know, like know where my thought, my thoughts are flowing to, to kind of make a conclusion or whatnot with this. I mean, I kind of call it like a game of Thrones of losing. Like it really is talking about these teams, these anecdotal histories as they're chasing essentially lottery odds and, and, the, and, the, and the reverse standings like in Tankathon, you know? Um, so there's, there's some chronological stuff built to it, but like what's really fun is there's the, there's the book kind of flows where like Philly comes into LA and Evan Turner, some Lakers fans might remember this, has some crazy like um, windmill dunk at the buzzer at the end of mm-hmm. some game, like late December 2013 or early January 2014, that pisses the Lakers players off. And then like you leave that game in the Lakers locker room and they go on to that infamous game where Chris Kamen's laying on the mm-hmm. bench. Um, so that's kind of how – I mean, and, and I found it fun to like piece together those different – scenes and 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 have have the storyline and the perspective of the book shift from locker room to locker room that was like such a joy to put together yeah no it it was really well done um i I just finished it up so let's get into the laker stuff yeah no i i definitely i mean i think it goes without saying but everyone listening to this should definitely go (laughs) out and and buy the book um i probably should have said that earlier so that that, that's my bad but i did say the title so definitely look it up on amazon or or wherever you you purchase your books barnes and noble um Okay, so let's get into the Lakers stuff. What yeah. to you? I mean, you you referenced multiple things: Kobe's contract, the, the Chris Kamen game, uh, some of the, you know, the number two draft pick. Like, what to you was the most interesting anecdote or, or nugget with the Lakers? I think the most like off the bat a storyline you know that has ripple effects throughout that really sets the stage for all these other anecdotes we can definitely talk about later on is the Kobe extension in November 2013. I mean. By all accounts, from people I talked to in and around the organization, they were planning all along to make a, a play for LeBron and Carmelo, Carmelo Anthony simultaneously in free agency in 2014. Obviously, they met with Carmelo in L.A., and obviously Mitch Kupchak flew to Akron and met with Rich Paul and Mark Termini and was one of the teams that they held meetings with before LeBron went back to Cleveland. But you know, all along, LeBron's camp, they, they didn't message it really directly until that July meeting, but... LeBron was tired of taking less money than his maximum in Miami. He didn't want people like Carmelo to get ridiculed when he wanted to go back to his team, the New York Knicks at the time, and take his ultimate maximum salary because, you know, we see it in sports now. It's like, oh, how come this guy is too selfish to not take a little discount, hometown discount, so the team has more money to build a contender around him? LeBron wanted to part of with his like with a nod to the players association maximize his value so every single player in the NBA can then maximize their value too. If LeBron's taking a discount, how can any player beneath him take that discount? So you you wind that back to November 2013 when the Lakers were restructuring Kobe's contract. He also wanted to maintain being the most expensive player in the league, but in doing so through cap restrictions that prevented the Lakers from opening up two max cap spaces. So 
almost eight, nine months before they ever even got a chance to pitch LeBron and Carmelo in free agency, they prevented themselves from having those spaces open to make those two guys come in 2014. And I really do think if they did open up that space and keep that available, they had a shot at getting Carmelo and LeBron. From, from people I talked to in the league all the way back in 2014, Carmelo was absolutely open to going to the Lakers with a little bit of a discount, uh, even um, if LeBron was coming with him. LeBron just wasn't going to do it if they both had to take less money. So I think from there, that's just a perfect encapsulation of how the Lakers were driving everything around Kobe, propping Kobe up as the guy, as he always was. And they were doing it partially to show the future stars like LeBron, who did obviously come in 2018, this is how we'll treat you one day. It just kind of backfired, I think. Yeah, I I think so. That would have been LeBron, Melo, and Kobe, correct? I think think so. I, I really do think that would have happened, yeah. That would have been fascinating. Uh, that that would have been, I mean, so many things because uh, it's obviously right. The, the Warriors weren't the Warriors yet, but they were becoming the Warriors. So that that would have, I mean, just changed the league landscape. Absolutely. I mean, Kobe's injuries obviously changed it too, which I think further make that contract confounding, right? I mean, they signed it after his season-ending Achilles injury that spring, and they still gave it back to him. Um, and, and you know, of course, the Achilles didn't really bother him moving forward, but the knee injury I, I alluded to, the shoulder that everybody knows about, um, they, I think he tore it in New Orleans um, on that, like, dunk against the Hornets at the time, I believe. Um, so, I mean, I think it just – it, it was a precarious notion when they did it. And I think they got ridiculed for it outside the organization too. And it ultimately did have it. But again, the Lakers are the Lakers and that's why they're included in the book. Like they can make mistakes that other teams can't because they're Los Angeles and they're the Lakers specifically. And they have a much wider room for error than anybody else. Yeah, no. And uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that um, a, a little bit later. What, what about the Lakers and the draft? They, they've obviously drafted, so well over the past six, seven years. Um, I mean, we're, we're even seeing uh, some of those seeds this season where, you know, Jordan Clarkson is uh, arguably the, the, the favorite for six man of the year. You, you have Julius Randle, who's probably going to win most improved, make an all NBA team, was an all star. You've seen what Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, like on and on, you know, pretty much everyone they've drafted has at least been a rotation level guy, if not a, a starter or, or better. Um, so with the Lakers in the draft, what did you learn about their selections, that process, and and any draft stories that you, you found interesting? Yeah, I mean, dating back to the Mitch Kupchak days, and, and I think even still in Charlotte, Mitch Kupchak has done a pretty good job. Um, the, the Lakers, yeah, they've they, they knocked out of the park. They definitely seem to have operated pretty secretly um, and, and tried to withhold information from rival teams from what I've gathered. I mean, that really came about in in 2015. Uh, when they had the number two pick, uh, I mean, there's this great scene in the book where um, uh, I'm trying to Bill Duffy was the agent for um, Jalil Okafor and Aaron Mintz was the agent for D'Angelo Russell. And they're both in the green room after Carl Anthony Towns goes number one to Minnesota. And they're bo- both agents are looking at each other shrugging like they had no idea what was going to happen. And that's just kind of way Mitch ran those drafts up until and I think that's how he still runs it in Charlotte. But that's up until his last days in the Lakers. Um, he really did keep things close to the vest, and while that that did bother some people, I think it was super successful for LA. Ultimately, I mean, Bill Burka is you know 
top down from anyone he talked to in the league considered, you know, one of the greatest scout draft minds of all time. And, you know, it's all, it's always pretty hard to figure out who actually pulled the trigger on drafting somebody, but he's credited for a lot of the late first round guys. And I mean, even someone like Larry Nance, Larry Nance, I remember hearing this detail of, you know, they brought out the vertical leap machine and he just kept registering 48, 48, 48. And they just, you know, they, they were just impressed by that raw athleticism. Um, and from players I talked to, that was something that the Lakers really were good at drilling and, and evaluating in the player workouts when they did visit Los Angeles. They were really good and, and ran really ragged workouts um, to show these guys testing you know, themselves at, you know, almost the brink of their physical limit to kind of see what they're capable of. So, um, I mean, I think the proof is in the pudding too, like, Josh Hart even. Jordan Clarkson didn't make it out there, but I remember talking to uh, assistant coach Jim Ion at the time who that um, his rookie year, you know, they thought Clarkson was going to be potentially their starting point guard that year. Just they loved the chops he had, and he just didn't carry himself like a rookie, and that's obviously been the way he's continued to carry himself throughout his career. So, yeah, from, from on down, I mean, the Brandon Ingram pick, I think, um, you could even make the argument then and even now that he could have gone one over Ben Simmons. Um, so getting Randall at seven, yeah, it's it, it's a long, long list of guys that they definitely did their homework on, did it well, and kept teams guessing. And I think that's like all you can really ask for out of front office. Yeah, no, I, I think it's been interesting to see how a lot of those picks have aged. And, and even at the time, you know, with, with – you had Randall getting injured that first year and, and not really being sure about his future and um, some of the drafting some of the older guys like Hart, like Nance. Uh, but but all those guys have really panned out to be solid NBA players at worst. Um, I love the anecdote about Chris, the, the Chris Kamen game in Cleveland. You, you mentioned it yeah. earlier. Um, I mean, that that to me is just one of the, the most iconic photos <laughs> of the last decade or so um, where, you know, he's laying on the bench and the Lakers are are barely fielding a five man lineup. Uh, to yeah. take us back to that night and, and just paint that scene. Yeah, I mean the Lakers were having such an injury issue that season that I mean I had multiple players, Jody Meeks, I remember especially saying like we stopped talking about it in the locker room because you didn't want to jinx yourself and have you be next. And like sure enough, he went out that game the night before in Minnesota. I, th- I believe it was the night before, and he hurts his ankle. Steve Blake came back from an injury after missing like 30-something games, and he just like ruptured his eardrum during that game. Like they were already sl- like low on bodies. They get these, they would get these guys back, and they would immediately get hurt again. I remember Xavier Henry was like this pr- this prize jewel of the coaching staff from talking to a lot of people on that team, like Johnny Davis, especially assistant. That 2013-14 season was like that kid could have been a star if he kept it didn't keep getting hurt. So by the time they get to Cleveland, they only had six healthy guys going into the game. And, you know, Steve Nash was warming up in the locker room pregame, like trying to convince the coaches to let him play. But he was, you know, obviously having his own share of really bad injury difficulty. And they weren't letting him play the second night of back-to-back. So he went on the bench, obviously, in street clothes. But when, you know, they ended up having Chris Kamen fell out, he ran back to the locker room and put on his uniform, even though he'd been ruled out. And was trying to convince the coaching staff to bring him back into the game. So at, a, at that certain point when Cayman fouled out, um, you know, the coaches, I talked to Mike D'Antoni. I talked to Johnny Davis. I talked to, I believe, somebody else on that staff. I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now. It might have been Clay Moser who was in that huddle. But literally none of them had ever been in that situation before. They had no idea what was going to happen. Um, and, you know, sure enough, 
they bring Robert, they keep in Robert Sacre when he ultimately gets the other foul and they had the technical foul. I think that might have been the only instance that's ever occurred in NBA history just to show how crazy this sequence was. And yeah, Chris Kamen lies down on the bench. And, you know, Ryan Kelly told me, and he, Ryan Kelly was an awesome interview. I talked to him for like an hour and a half for this book. He just. The, the rookies, the second, the second round draft picks on these teams are always guys who remember this stuff so clearly. Um, I mean, this is a whole other quick thing, but he told me this great detail um, after Kobe hurt his knee again when, that, when they came back that year. He, like, walked in on Kobe before a game one time, like right around Christmas. He was supposed to be LeBron versus Kobe, you know, and he just saw Kobe sitting there quietly in his locker um, before anyone else had gotten there wearing a suit, just kind of like mourning his lost season. Um, but back to Cleveland, Ryan Kelly tells me that Cayman did it for, like, a second, and he just thought it was a funny, quick, like, ha-ha, look, there's nobody here. But, of course – Cameras take that picture. It goes up on Twitter. It gets photoshopped and memed left and right, and it lives on in infamy forever. And we're still talking about it. So, I think that's so hilarious how these little small seconds can be captured and turn into you know a piece of uh, indelible lore in a, in a franchise history. So, it's uh, it's pretty funny. It, it's such a great photo. Um, well, so I, I'm interested, like th- this, a lot of what you're you're talking about, uh, you know, with, with the book in general. I mean, you said you know basically the the Game of Thrones of of losing and tanking and like how how was it talking to people and and having them relive some of these moments that I'm sure you know with, with distance and, and time they can now kind of look back at it and, and maybe chuckle. But I'm yeah. sure some of this stuff was frustrating, you know, uh, painful. Like h- how was that process of um, and I guess specifically talking with, with Lakers people uh, because this is a franchise that for the most part, I mean, throughout NBA history has always made the playoffs and, and been really yeah. good. And and that stretch of, you know, basically 2013 through 2019 was the the roughest stretch in franchise history, arguably. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't even know if it's arguable. And um, so what, what was it like kind of revisiting some of those conversations? And a lot of these people are no longer with the, the franchise as well. So, you know, didn't necessarily end on the best terms in all cases. Like, what, what was that like of, of just kind of approaching people, rehashing some of these uh, difficult memories and, and, and just kind of getting that out of them? You kind of took a bit of my answer. I was going to say, and I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of these people are no longer affiliated with the franchise. And obviously, you know, the Lakers are the Lakers. They're a family. And, you know, they once a Laker, always a Laker. Like, that, that, that was a big theme that I didn't really realize as somebody kind of parachuting into the story that that, that – divide between the old guard and the old players and the whole Lakers mafia type people, the James Worthy crew, like people who were around in the glory days in the eighties and nineties, like, um, you know, those guys had a direct line to Jeannie and her side of things. And the current situation, it was kind of like Mitch and Mike D'Antoni for a while um, against magic and Jeannie for a while. And, that caused a lot of pain for a lot of people, I think, in that organization, especially when with Dr. Buss, you know, being in his last days. And then obviously there was the whole, you know, two-year, uh, whatever we want to call it, deadline, benchmark, whatever, for Jim and Mitch to kind of turn that thing around. And uh, it, it, there was definitely some strife within the organization. And it really did feel like there was a divide between those sides um, that, you know, for a while was, was definitely stung people especially I think it was reflected in the fan base. I mean, I, I had 
a lot of Lakers fan friends at the time in school, for whatever reason, a lot of LA people would end up at Northeastern in Boston and they would kind of like laugh, like at the pain, you know what I mean? Um, it's, and, oh, you know, it's not that bad. I guess the way, oh, kind of like the way Knicks fans are talking about the Knicks. Um, and, but I will say like, there were some chuckles and there was from like, it doesn't really matter because they're the Lakers anyway. And here they are. And again, that's the theme I think of their whole role in the story. But um, the one thing that I thought was really interesting, particularly was the Byron Scott di- dynamic too, because he comes in after that kind of divide um, is starting to mend the fences, right? Like, like they kind of bring in Byron. It, someone told me like, it was a, basically a handshake deal. He was only going to be there for the last two years of Kobe's contract to kind of like steady the ship be the figurehead, you know, the guy who was Kobe's teammate, was a Laker, a, a multi-time coach of the year, but, like, he's not expected to take us to a championship, that type of guy. Um, and in doing that, he really pissed off D'Angelo Russell. I mean, it's not really that – I didn't get to cover it too, too much in the book because I was running out of time, but there's definitely details in there of D'Angelo telling me that he, you know, he called Byron Scott an idiot and said that, you know, he really thought that he handled him – you know, like a bullying dad would a kid who was like a little too hard on, on his son, like like coaching his own son harder than everybody else on the team type of situation to the, to the point where D'Angelo would like take the most circuitous path to the back of the bench when he got called out of the game to like avoid having to talk to or high five Byron Scott. And I mean, I'm sure Lakers fans remember there, there were just as many stories about D'Angelo being yanked out of the game in the fourth quarter as there was about Kobe his last year. And that was a, those were really conflicting ideals. The whole Kobe retirement tour versus developing these young guys, that was a sensitive topic for a lot of people too. I mean, looking back now, they all kind of love and worship their time around Kobe, of course, but it was interesting to see how much that was just like an elephant in the room and there was conflicting agendas, it seems like, at all times kind of over those five years. And it's kind of no seek, no wonder why they were the worst team in the league over that five-year stretch. You mentioned Ryan Kelly and, and the, the one-and-a-half-hour conversation you had with him. Who is your favorite person from the Lakers organization uh, to, to talk to? Was it Ryan? Was it someone else? Was it maybe someone we weren't expecting, like not a player or something? Like who uh, who, who did you enjoy talking to the most? Well, Robert Sacre is an easy answer. I mean, <laughs> Bill, Bill, Bill Oram, friend of the pod. Uh, he, is this his pod too? This is technically, yeah. It's more, yeah. more his pod than mine. Bill, Bill and I have Bill and I have talked so many times, you know, off the record, just about how great Bob Soccer is. And honestly, some of these stories people might have even heard a little bit of because Bill's done a really good job of scooping me while I, you know, had this reported and I was waiting for it to come out. I remember seeing him drop that Chris Kamen story and it's been like, oh, Bill, hey, Bill's so good. Um, but yeah, Soccer is just like a legend. I mean, he just chills up in Pacific Northwest wherever he does and watches Lakers games and is just like still sitting back like a kid on the couch, like so amazed he got to play on the Lakers with Kobe and his stories were great. Clay Moser, um, honestly though, like I don't think I could have covered the Lakers earnestly and like genuinely as I did like in the book without Clay. I talked to him for probably a couple hours, probably multiple times even. And he had so many – roles within the organization he was on the coaching staff analytics guy like a right hand man to mitch kupchak at a lot of times he was there for i think the better part of a decade um so he kind of like opened the door f- to the franchise for me um that i really w- was grateful for some great details some great stories um there jim Ion was great 
Um, Dan D'Antoni, I've, I've, I've always loved talking mm. to him. Like he, he kind of has gone under the radar in terms of being a great quote and a storyteller because he coaches in the college game versus Mike being what he's been in the NBA. But as, as great as Mike is, I, that everyone knows Mike D'Antoni is this funny, you know, West Virginia guy with his draw and his storytelling. Um, Dan is even funnier, and he had a little, probably a little <laughs> bit more of an axe to grind with the Lakers yeah. than Mike did. Um, you know, he's, yeah. he was standing up for his brother a little bit. So those were those are guys that come to mind, yeah. I, I just love the way Dan speaks. I could listen to him all day. Um, he holds nothing back. Yeah. Uh, and then – Two two more Laker questions, and then we'll we'll uh, get into the the, the play in tournament and the just the greater playoff picture at large. Um, a, a lot of what we've been discussing again is relatively negative. This was the nadir of the Lakers franchise, but they got that storybook ending when LeBron signed in 2018. They mm-hmm. uh, cashed in a lot of these draft picks and assets in 2019 for AD, and then they won it all, of course, in the bubble in 2020. Um, yeah. So I guess they didn't tank in the traditional way. <laughs> I think they accidentally tanked. And, and then like you said, being in Los Angeles, being the Lakers, uh, th- their margin for error is certainly greater than basically any other franchise in the league. Um, but w- was this sort of the, I, I guess, w- what did you take away from the, the kind of the, the Lakers narrative loop ending w- with them winning the title? And like, is this the sort of, best case scenario for like accidental tanking or like, is it just they're the Lakers and of, of course they were going to get LeBron and AD and um, you know, y- yes, they had to withstand the bubble and win, but like, you know, they're always going to have stars. Like wh- I guess wh- what did you kind of take away from kind of looking at it now versus from where you started in the story um, kind of just that the, the Lakers narrative loop in, in there? Yeah. I mean, just like you said, I think it's very important, and I, I do not ignore the fact that this nadir, like you mentioned, obviously set the stage for what happened in 2020. So this is not to you know just pile onto the Lakers because they're the, they're the champs, and I give respect where it's due, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I went into the, I went into the research and the reporting, like wanting to know how it got that bad because they're the Lakers, right? Like it was shocking, especially you know someone. I'm not a Sixers fan anymore, but like I grew up. In that, you know, that 0-1 series, like as much as I loved AI and that, that game one is still something that, you know, it lives on forever. They never had a chance in that series. So it's like, how did they get there? I wanted to know those details. Um, but of course, like that I think a big a big centerpiece of the struggle they were having was you know, Jim and, and Mitch always believed they were going to get a guy. Like they kept wanting to sign these one-year cheap contracts, like Ed Davis and Lou Williams, and you know, you go on down the list: Tariq Black, you know, Ryan Kelly, Jody Meat, whatever. Because they just always believed, you know, if we don't get LeBron and Carmelo in 2014, we'll get LaMarcus in 2015, we'll get KD in 2016. But to the point where they didn't even get a meeting with KD, I think that's when they really realized, like, we need to actually start to do this more holistically. And sure enough, you know, once they even, even tried to do that, LeBron just came anyway, but you're right. Like all, all those, all those draft picks ended up being the cause or the real, you know, centerpiece of the package for AD, um, which is a clear benefit to tanking. And that's, that's kind of also like why it exists. Like the teams that aren't the Lakers, they need to use that strategy to do exactly what the Lakers did. Once you get your guy, you got a LeBron, you have to use your pieces to, build the team around him. And the other fascinating 
you know, the thing to, to tie a bow in the Lakers storyline in this book is lottery reform did not get passed because of the Lakers, right? They got passed because of Philly and Boston and other teams that were playing the lottery far more egregious than Los Angeles was. But the Lakers are arguably the biggest benefits of it because there was never a fourth drawing before 2019, the first year of lottery reform. And that fourth drawing is where the Lakers jumped from nine to four to get that number four pick to get Anthony Davis. That package would have been very, very different. Kyle Kuzma probably is going to New Orleans if, if that number four pick um, isn't included in the package for AD. And that's another example of how big markets, you know, benefit from this draft game. Like you get one bounce of luck if you're the Lakers, you can trade that four pick for Anthony Davis. If you get one bounce of luck for other teams, you're just getting a young player who might turn into Anthony Davis one day. But I think it is super fascinating how this lottery was changed basically to prevent teams from doing this strategy to compete with big markets like the Lakers. And so far, arguably in the, in the, very few years of this new system, the Lakers might have benefited from it more than anybody. And then final question uh, regarding the book. Is there anything that was left on the uh, cutting room floor that you weren't able to include that uh, you'd like to to share or, you know, some type of Laker anecdote that you just had to cut that uh, you you find funny or, or interesting or whatever? Yeah. I, I definitely put a lot of old Kobe in there. I mean, there's crazy details of this like summer workout he did with Julius Randle and Ed Davis before a season. Um, there's stuff like Xavier Henry telling me his how he would just like scrap Mike D'Antoni's play call and just like do this, do this, do this. I'm gonna find you here. Um, and the, the soft like Charmin practice I have like in greater detail than I think anybody's ever reported on before. Um, but I, I didn't get to include Kobe's last game in the book. I wrote it for a deleted scene. Literally, I, I had a newsletter every other week before the book came out. Um, and it was, I mean, from going into the huddle to the pregame locker room to you know following the Warriors, following him from afar while they're even chasing their own history. You know, that 73rd win um, up in Golden, St- up in Oakland. Um, I mean, this, just the emotion that was in that building, you know, hearing people from D'Angelo to Julius to Clay Moser, like I talked about, to Jim Ion, like I talked about, um, just everyone in that in that franchise was just like on the edge of their seat watching it from, you know, courtside from – and Mitch Kupchak would always stand in the entrance to the locker room apparently um, from the owner's box, like – they were all watching it like a little kid in the stands. And that to me was, was pretty much what, what, what encapsulated why they did this in the first place, why they gave Kobe that deal in 20, November 2013, why they are the Lakers, why they are the city of stars. Like Kobe putting on a magical performance where everyone wanted it to happen and allowed it to happen and kept feeding him and it did happen. Like I don't think that happens anywhere outside of L.A. Like as much as people around the league who aren't Lakers fans can – kind of hate on them like that is why it's because these things tend to happen in hollywood in staples center with a guy wearing a gold jersey so i think it was pretty cool to see even the most powerful power players around that franchise that night they all felt just like anyone else watching that game at home or in the stands well again uh well done dude uh this was a great book i I definitely recommend everyone check it out uh but before before we get out of here let, let's let's talk some current Lakers, some let's 2021 Lakers. Um, they have the play-in game on Wednesday. What is your kind of you know two-minute analysis of LeBron, Steph, Lakers, Warriors uh, playing? Like, I think if this was a seven-game series, the Lakers would be 
heavily favored. I mean, they're heavily favored to win the game, but heavily favored, you know, sweep, five-game series, whatever. But in a one-game scenario, you know, essentially March Madness, where we, we saw what Steph did uh, 12 years ago at Davidson, like, yeah. I... I I do think the Lakers should be heavily favored, and I do think they're going to win. But with the way Steph's playing right now, I don't think you can rule out him just going supernova and and single handedly winning the Warriors a game. Yeah, saying remember what he did in the tournament, I think, is disrespectful to remembering what he did on Sunday. Uh, yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. he, just, he just, I mean, they had a game against Memphis, yeah. and obviously Memphis <laughs> isn't the Lakers, but he 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 scored forty plus and got them in that E seed, you know. Um, but you're right. I mean, another thing, the Warriors definitely don't have the size. I mean, that's one thing that I find so interesting about this current Lakers team. I mean, I think it was a big emphasis in the offseason that they wanted to have more skilled bigs, it seems. Like, there's no Dwight or JaVale on this team. It's Montrez Harrell and Marcus Gasol and Andre Drummond. Um, I mean, that size, they, they obviously don't like playing uh, AD or LeBron at the five because AD and LeBron don't like playing the five, so they bring in this third big and, like, they're the one team that it seems in the league that can play with that size and not sacrifice speed. And that's going to be an issue for the Warriors. Like obviously they're the small ball, you know, darlings of the NBA. Um, but I just don't know if that's going to work in the long run here. And um, I mean, this is a, obviously Draymond can uh, guard AD as, as well as anybody, but then that leaves LeBron free to roam around. And I don't think Juan Toscano Anderson is going to be the answer. You know, that's kind of obviously the big, uh, trump card that the Lakers have had ever since they've got these two guys. Most teams don't have someone who can sufficiently guard both of them uh, for long stretches. So, in a play-in tournament, where st- in a play-in type environment, win and go home, where Steph can go off, you know, so can those guys too. Um, and the Lakers have two of them, and that's pretty typically, you know, that's why tanking, I think, is even a thing to begin with. Like these analytical minded executives realized. All champions pretty much have multiple all-stars, and the most direct path to get them, if you're not the Lakers, is through the draft. And the Lakers got these multiple all-stars, and they won the title last year, you know? So I think um, that's kind of what every every people – I mean, most people I talk to in the league still think the Lakers are the favorites to come out of the West as long as got those guys are healthy. So mm-hmm. I think that's what this all comes down to. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think – I, I think the the bracket, frankly, broke in their favor. I, I wrote that last night. Yeah. Um, Where just looking at, look, I mean, look, no one is going to match up well uh, against AD and LeBron. But I, I think when looking at the top five or, or six teams, I, I would probably make the case that um, you know th- their potential path of uh, assuming they beat Golden State, which uh, again I think we're in agreement they, they probably will. Uh, you know, th- that playoff path is Phoenix in round one, Denver, Portland in round two. And then I, I would say, you know, Utah, the Clippers or Dallas in round three. I, I-, I don't see the Warriors upsetting Utah, but who knows? Um, so like that path to me is as advantageous as it gets for the Lakers, because I love Phoenix. I, I think that they- they're, you know, one of the teams of the season. You know, it's been a great story. I- I'm a huge Chris Paul guy, uh, but I-, I just, you know, First matchup without AD, LeBron dropped 38, just absolutely destroyed their front court. Uh, th- this last matchup that they had, AD dropped 42. They crushed the the Suns without LeBron, Dennis Schroeder, and Kyle Kuzma. I just don't think it's a good matchup for the Suns. Like, I, you know, I just they don't have a matchup for AD, and you can throw Jay Crowder, or Mikhail Bridges on LeBron, but he's still LeBron. 
And <laughs> I, I just think that, that's a five or six game series. <clears throat> I, I kind of go back and forth on that. And then the next round, I actually think is even easier, right? Where, you, you know, you're going from the two seed to the three or the six, but Denver and Portland, I, I just don't see how they defend, you know, LeBron and AD. And then, yes, you get to the conference finals. Okay, you have a Rudy Gobert patrolling the paint, or, or you have Kawhi and PG and Pat Beverly on the perimeter. So, like, that, that is a much harder series defensively against the Lakers' offense. But the Lakers have the best defense in the league. So, yes, these teams will, all three of those teams in the first couple rounds that they might match up with, have top seven offenses. So, they're going to present some problems. But I, I think the Lakers will figure it out. We, we've kind of seen them. Uh, adapt well throughout series, you know, going back to the last postseason, they usually lose that game one and, and then kind of adapt in, in game two and three. So I guess, I mean, wh- what do you think about their playoff path and yeah. and Denver and the Clippers trying to avoid them and, and just sort of how the, the bracket broke? And, and do you agree that it's in their favor? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's trying to avoid them for what I just said that, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was trying to, I definitely started reporting out some stuff on the Lakers and the kind of off season that they will face regardless of what happens being that they do have so few guys under contract, um, mm-hmm. which I think is another interesting subplot here, especially the Dennis Schroeder situation. Obviously that 484 that's been reported, he turned down. I mean, I've heard that from several people and I think that played a factor in the Kyle Lowry talks. And I wonder if that, you know, pops up again, but um, you know, for the here and now, like I think, you know, in talking to people for that story, for the beginnings of that story, everyone has said, like I said, like these, when these guys are healthy, it doesn't really matter where they're seated. And that's why I didn't think them falling down to seven really is that big of a deal. If they are able to, to beat Phoenix, which, you know, this is the perfect situation for all the Phoenix haters who said that this is a young team who's arriving ahead of schedule. They're not, they're not ready for the moment. Well, now they have to play the defending champs. Like I think that is the, the perfect, you know, test. If, if Phoenix can get past LA, then like no one's going to be confusing them for a pretender anymore, right? Um, but if the Lakers do, I mean, they don't have home court, but they'll effectively just slot right into where they would have been as a two seed anyway. And mm-hmm. you're right, the path is there. Then presents itself against Denver, Portland, pretty advantageously. Obviously, because of the MVP, I think at least I don't think it's pretty. I don't think it's close. Um, just in terms of what the MVP seems to have been over the years, like he's the guy for what you know, MVP criteria typically is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that if they do get past Phoenix, they, you're right, they kind of buy themselves uh, an opportunity to kind of grow this unit together, hopefully get healthier. Uh, you know, against no slouch in Portland or Denver, they'll, I think both those teams could probably get a game or two. Um, but it'll allow the Lakers to kind of mix and match some lineups and figure themselves out and get healthier before, yeah, maybe they see, you know, the matchups that they're really not fearing, but I guess looking forward to is more of a chess match with the Clippers or the Jazz. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I said this on on last night's postgame pod, but I, I think for, for me, as just looking at the way the Lakers match up with these teams, if you looked at that three through six of, you know, they, they could have technically... Well, I guess they couldn't have played Dallas or Portland, but, but they could have been matched up on their side of the bracket, which, you know, they're, they're matched up on Portland's side. Um, if I was ranking, you know, Clippers, Denver, Dallas, Portland, in terms of matchups for the Lakers, I definitely think that the Clippers are the toughest matchup, right? Like, I, I think most people are in agreement with that. But beyond that, I would actually say Dallas is probably a tougher matchup for the Lakers than, than Denver or Portland. And, and, you know, I, I think it's arguable. You, you can kind of make, you know, the, the case either way. But just from seeing those matchups, I mean, they, they just had two games in Dallas where, where they lost both of them. The way Luka carved them up in the pick and roll, 
Um, you know, I, I think that their their just style of play it is really tough for the Lakers bigs. And I think the Lakers will have to shift to 80 at the five at some point and whether he wants to do that or not, like that, that's still their best lineup. But I, it I think, always will be. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I just think though, like they caught a break in looking at like, again, their potential path of, and look, it could get a lot harder where if, if they lose the golden state, now all of a sudden you're looking at Utah mm-hmm. round one, you know, most likely the Clippers round two, and then probably Phoenix in the conference finals. And that is a much tougher path, in my opinion. Um, you know, probably playing the, the two best other teams in the West in Utah and the Clippers. So I think they, they caught a break, but of course they, they got to actually win the games. We've, we've come to expect the unexpected this season with this team where, you know, every other game it's someone's injured, someone's out with COVID protocol. Um, there's some type of thing going on. So, um, I, I don't want to get like too confident in, in where they're going to be, but I think, you know, as long as they can win the Golden State game, to me that they're set up nicely to at least make the conference finals. And look, I know everyone complained about it from Luca to LeBron to Danny Ainge, but the fact we're having this conversation, the playing tournament is good. It is it great is. for the league. It is definitely here to stay. If the Lakers lose and they don't make the playoffs, maybe they'll adjust it and they'll make it just be 8 versus 9-10. But the fact that we have Steph Curry versus LeBron James on a Wednesday night, um, I, I think it's Wednesday, um, yeah. for for playing for the 7 seed. And both those guys, like you just mentioned, have a lot of a reason to want that 7 seed versus the 8 seed. How can you not love this? Like This is why the NBA did this to begin with, and I think it's great. And anyone who is not in the playing tournament, you know, don't watch it then. <laughs> no, it's 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 great, and it, of course, it's one of those things where you're you're in it, you're going to complain, you're not going to like it. But for those of us watching, which is really what Matt, I mean, at the end of the day, the NBA is an entertainment product, right? Like it, it's it so sometimes it gets you know, but I, I we obviously take it very seriously. It's it's our livelihood, um, covering it, analyzing it, but it, it's at the end of the day, it's an entertainment product, and this I think clearly made the product more entertaining. Like I was glued to the TV watching that Golden State Memphis game. I was checking yeah. in on on Clippers versus OKC and Denver Portland, although that one was over pretty quickly. Um, you know, while also watching you know the Lakers Pelicans game, like it was just a, a, a mad dash to see who's going to be what seed, what what's the matchup going to be, what's the path going to be. Um, so I, I think the NBA got their wish, and and uh, I think like when they were thinking of the playing tournament, they were not thinking LeBron versus Steph, but I, I'm yeah. sure they're not that upset about that. <laughs> and listen, if the seven seed can't beat the eight seed, and then can't beat the winner of the nine versus 10 seed, you're not going to be able to go through four rounds and win the title anyway. So suck it up, take care of your business, put on a show and you'll do the, you'll do the NBA a favor, which in turn will do yourself a favor too, because if the NBA's business is booming, players get half of it and everyone will be happy. So I'm excited for the play-in. I think it's great that the Lakers are in and obviously Lakers fans probably wish they weren't definitely wish they weren't. Um, But yeah, the drama will be fun. I think it's like another fascinating, you know, subplot in this franchise where, like I said before, it, this offseason's going to be interesting. And I wonder how, you know, the Lakers respond to whatever this postseason run is. And, you know, the first full season where, you know, really I think people are starting to come to terms with the mortality of LeBron and the injury rate of AD and how that impacts everything moving forward. 
Like, we'll find out if they can win it from the seven seed, you know, and if the regular season doesn't matter. Same thing with Brooklyn. With You know, if they win the title or win the East and they haven't had their three guys together all year, um, it'll be interesting to find out. So um, uh, I'm excited to see how uh, all the dominoes fall. I, I think that's a perfect way to get out of here. Um, y- you can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake L. Fisher. Uh, anything you want to plug, man, b- besides the book, obviously, uh, again, Built to Lose, how the NBA's tanking uh, era changed the league forever. Be sure yeah. to buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your books. Um, but anything else you want to plug? No, again, it's just it's the 300 interviews I did. There's so many original details in there that you're not going to find anywhere else. From Chris Stapps Przingis, Przingis <laughs> driving from Vegas uh, like the day after his workout uh, for his pro day to the Lakers and having dead legs and realizing he wasn't going to LA number two to tease <laughs> the before like some 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 cool new info from the the softest Charmin Kobe practice. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff in there that I know it was a nadir in Lakers history, but I'm sure Lakers fans will find some chuckling moments like a lot of pe- the people I talk to. So please buy the book. Yeah. Uh, Amazon, bookshop.org if you want to bu- support a local bookseller. Barnes & Noble, my publisher, Triumph. And uh, yeah, I'd appreciate any support that's out there. Well, thank you for coming on the pod, Jake. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Jovan Buha, J-O-V-A-N-B-U-H-A. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're currently listening. And if you have not subscribed to The Athletic yet, you can currently do so for a dollar a month for the first six months. Go to theathletic.com or my Twitter and subscribe off of one of my stories. Thank you guys again for listening and go buy Jake's book. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.